Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite with you to turn in your copies of the Scriptures with me this morning to Acts chapter 10. moment, we will read verses 34 through to the end. As we continue to study, make our way through this book of Acts. I was reminded this week that this is our story. This is my story. These events that happened 2,000 years ago are still meaningful for me today. They're still important for me today. They're still necessary for me today. I need need this event. I need all the events that happen in the book of Acts. And God in His graciousness and in His kindness has given them to me so that I can be changed by them, so I can be transformed by them. We're not here this morning to gain more information. I'm not here this morning to simply just try to give you or impart some knowledge to you this morning. I'm here because I believe that God's Word changes people. It's changed me. It's transformed me. That's why I want to know it. That's why I want to read it. That's why I want to dive into it. To see how the events, and this morning the events in Acts chapter 10, can change me, can transform me. And I believe if they can change and transform me, that they can change and transform you as well. So let's stand together as we read God's word. So Peter opened his mouth and said, 
truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold, bat- can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your testimonies are wonderful. May our soul keep them. We praise you because the unfolding of your word gives light. And imparts understanding to us who are simple. And so now we open our mouths wide because we long for your commandments Feed us, O Lord. Turn to us. Be gracious to us. As is your way with those who love your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever watched the television show Sesame Street, I could tell you the kind of television shows that are going on in my house. (laughs) But there's one song on there in particular, song that's entitled One of These Things. You know that song? You remember that song? It goes like this, if you haven't seen Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the others. 
one of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? Or maybe if you've ever looked in a, a children's activity book, they like to have those pictures of two things and the pictures look similar, but then the children are to pick out what's different in one picture than the other picture. We teach our children at an early age to spot the differences. We can notice something that might be out of place, something that's not just quite right. With so much practice from a young age as children, we become very good at spotting what is different. But how often sometimes... Do we notice similarities? Do we notice what is the same? And I believe that's what we see here in Acts chapter 10. The focus is not what is different. The focus is what is the same. We see different people. We see Gentiles. We see people whom the Jewish people saw as unclean, they would not want to associate with them. And God here is showing Peter and showing us his plan that Gentiles, different people, are to be included into the family of God. And what do we see when, when we encounter these different people? Are they treated differently? Is life made more complicated for them since they are Gentiles? Is it more difficult for them because they are different? What kind of requirements are placed upon them? What kind of standards do they have to meet in order to become people of God? Different people do not have to meet different standards to belong to the people of God. That's good news. That's good news that it's the same for everyone. The bar isn't higher for some people than others. And that's what should strike us from Acts 10, 34 through 48. It's not what's different, but what is the same. How are the Gentiles going to get into the people of God? How are those who are different, those who are outsiders, those who are outcasts? How is it that these people are going to be welcomed by God? How is it that these people are going to come to Jesus Christ. Are we prone to ask the same kinds of questions about people that we encounter in this world? What is it going to take for, for this person? What requirements do they have to meet? What standards do they have to, to meet in order to, be, order to be welcomed into the people of God? Do they have to do something different in order to get in? We have different expectations, different requirements of them. Acts chapter 10, it's not something different that amazes. It's those things that are the same that bring amazement. In the midst of people's differences, in the midst of cultural differences, in the midst of ethnic differences, and all of the other differences that we can think of as we seek to minister to this world, what is it that must remain the same? 
It's not what's different that should draw our attention. It's what's same that must hold our attention. And I think this is sometimes where, where we can err because we can think it's our job to diagnose people. So we see different people out there. <laughs> we know that they're different. And so we want to diagnose and say, okay, what is wrong with this person who is different and then what is it that they really need? God is the one who diagnoses people's problems. And God is the one who tells us what they need because he knows what people need perfectly. He knows what it is that you need this morning. He knows what people need in whatever circumstances they find themselves in life. And so what is it that must remain the same then? As we look from Acts chapter 10 this morning, three things. Number one, we proclaim the same gospel message. We proclaim the same gospel message. Do you love a good softball question? <laughs> you know those kind of questions where someone asks that question and you're going to be able to hit it out of the park. That's exactly what Peter receives. A softball invitation to proclaim the gospel. These are the kind of invitations that we as Christians long for. We should jump at the chance to answer them. Let's understand where we are, though. We jumped into the middle of this account here in Acts chapter 10. If you remember, there was a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion. He lived in the city of Caesarea on the coast of Israel. And he had an encounter with an angel. An angel came to him and said, Cornelius, there's someone that you need. This person named Simon or Peter, and he has a message for you call for him. And so Cornelius sends three people to go get Peter. And Peter has had this vision of a, a great sheet that comes down out of heaven and inside this sheet are all kind of animals. And, and he hears a voice that says, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, no, because in that sheet are unclean animals for the Jewish people. Peter says, no, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean before. That happens three times, and then the vision stops, and here are these three men sent by Cornelius, these three Gentiles, and they say, Cornelius, our master, has had this vision of an angel, and he needs you to come to tell him the message that you have. And so Peter goes with them to Caesarea, and he comes into the Gentile house, which is a great thing because Jews would not go into a Gentile house. You just didn't do that as a Jew. That would make you unclean. But Peter has been shown that what God calls clean, he's not to call unclean. And so he goes into the Gentile house, and Cornelius has called all of his friends and all of his relatives there. And Cornelius recounts this angel that he has 
seen. And he says, we're all here in the presence of God to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord to tell us. Here is Peter. He has this this congregation before him who's waiting with bated breath for the words that he is about to speak. The message that Peter proclaims to the Gentiles is the only message that he knows. It's the only message that really matters. It is the only message with significance and power. It's the only message needed, and it was needed by these Gentiles at that very moment. It's the only message that actually gives life to those who hear it. We believe that this is a timeless message. That it's every bit as necessary for today as it was for them then. So Peter proclaims the basic gospel message. That's it. That's all that they need to hear. They just need to hear the basic, simple gospel message. And so where does Peter begin? Opens his mouth. I think that's a a sign. We've seen that other places in God's word when it says someone opened their mouth. that What they are about to say is very important and even a message from God. I wonder if we would see that, that the gospel message is not a message from man to man. It's a message from God to man. That's what we need. We don't need another man's message. We get men's messages all the time. We need a message from God. And that's what Peter gives them. And he starts by saying this, I truly I know that there uh, truly I know that God shows no partiality. Truly I know that God shows no partiality. What great news for us to hear this morning. God shows no favoritism. We as human beings despise favoritism. Unless <laughs> we are the ones being favored. <laughs> and yet we as human beings hold our own prejudices. We have uh, we can have denominational prejudices. We can have national prejudices. We can have racial prejudices. We can have social prejudices. We can have ethnic prejudices. But God is completely different than us and perfectly shows no favoritism but accepts and welcomes people from every nation. The gospel is for all people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I think that's what Peter is saying there when he says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right. I think there's this idea there that there's this faith and obedience that follows faith. And that God welcomes those people. That is the life that is pleasing to God. And you do not have to be from a certain tribe or a certain tongue or people or nation. Why? Because one day, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be worshiping around the throne of God and it will be put on display for the whole universe. God shows no favoritism. 
And praise God that he shows no favoritism because if he did, I wouldn't get in. There was no way that you or I could be saved. God shows no favoritism in who this gospel goes out to. So what does it say to us about who we proclaim the gospel to? We proclaim it to everyone. Peter says this is the message that's gone out first to Israel. It's gone out to them, but it's a message that goes out to all people and this is the good news. Look at what he says there in the middle of verse 36. Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Right here it tells us a problem. The problem of all mankind. They do not know peace kind of peace are we talking about? We're talking about world peace? We're talking about military peace? We're talking about peace in society? We're talking about an inner peace? The problem is that all mankind, without distinction, does not have peace with God. They've been at war with God. They've been against God. They've been sinning against Him, rebelling against His word and against His ways. This is the good news that people need to hear today. It is the good news, it is good news that you can have peace with God. And let's be frank, that's the only peace that really matters. I don't care what other kind of peace you may try to find or achieve in this world. If you don't know peace with God and you're still in your sins and you're still separated from God, you're still without hope and life. Peace with God is the only peace that eternally satisfies. Christian, do you know this kind of peace? And if you know this kind of peace, if you know that you have peace with God, is it evident in your life? Do people see that you have peace in your life? Is there a peace and a tranquility in your heart because you know that you are right with God? And that is a peace that transcends all of the other kind of peace that's out there in the world. Because this peace transcends circumstances. That's how the world defines peace. How's it going for you? How's it going in your life? Everything good? Then you have peace. But what is it for the Christian? Everything in the world could be going the worst. But you have peace with God. You have tranquility of heart. Because all of those anxieties that have welled up in your heart and in your mind, you can cast them on the one who you are at peace with because you know he cares for you. And it doesn't make sense to the world, does it? It doesn't make sense to the world when they see Christians who have a tranquility and peace in their hearts when everything around them looks like it's falling apart. And then what do they say? They ask a question. How are you able to have 
that kind of peace and that kind of tranquility? Well, let me tell you, because I know Jesus Christ. The good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52.7 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And so Peter tells us this peace comes through Jesus Christ, and then Peter makes this declaration. (laughs) He is Lord of all. Peace in our lives, because we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Peace in our lives comes to us through Jesus Christ because He is Lord of all. There is an authority above us, over us, that brings peace into our lives. Is that what the world says? The world says, well, if you want to have peace, you need to be your own boss. You need to be your own authority. But no, it's Jesus Christ who is ruling and reigning. It's the fact that Jesus Christ is king that we're able to have peace. And remember what Isaiah said in that verse I just quoted, your God reigns. Well, here is Jesus Christ, Lord of all. He is reigning. He is God. He is Lord over everything. He is Lord over everyone. He is Lord over the Jews. He is Lord over the Gentiles. Why is this message of the gospel of peace for everyone? Because Jesus is Lord of everyone. The basic, simple gospel message is not to make Jesus the Lord of your life. No, it comes with a bold declaration. He is the Lord of your life. You are called upon to recognize that He is Lord and live for Him. Turn to Him, confess Him as the Lord that He truly is. But what's amazing is what this Lord of all, Jesus Christ, what he has done to make it possible for us to have peace with God. This is where we have to remember that the gospel is based upon historical facts, events. This is objective history, not subjective history. This is what really happened and why it really happened. And Peter goes before this Gentile congregation and appeals to what they know has already happened. And so here are the events that happened beginning after the ministry of John the Baptist and his baptism is proclaimed. What happens? Jesus of Nazareth was appointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power. Those words that Peter speaks, that Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, would tell us one thing. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one promised of God in the Old Testament who would rescue and save His people. We see it visibly displayed in the life of Jesus Christ. 
and in his baptism in particular. How it, he, he comes up out of the water, and what happens as Jesus comes up out of the water there at his baptism? The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and there's a voice that comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is God's anointed one. who now also is going about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Makes me think there for a moment that idea of being oppressed. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, Israelites are being oppressed by Pharaoh. And they call out to Pharaoh or they call out to God to rescue them from Pharaoh's oppression. And it says that God hears their cries and he answers them. Interesting that he sends a baby who would grow up to be a man named Moses who would lead the people out. People were oppressed by the devil. God sent another baby, his son who would grow up to lead people out of their oppression by the devil. He was able to do this because God was with him. It's the explanation behind it. This is the righteous life Christ lived in the power of the Spirit, perfectly obeying the Father in all things, inaugurating the kingdom of God, demonstrating that he was overcoming this present darkness, and this is the ministry that Jesus Christ lived, and he didn't live it in a closet. He lived it where people could see it, verify it, witness it, just as the apostles had done. They had been with Jesus. They had seen and experienced everything that he did. It's proclaiming that Jesus lived this absolutely perfect and innocent life. Jesus did nothing that deserved what came upon him next. And what does it say there? We're witnesses to these things that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. And then these words. They put him to death. They killed him. This one whom God anointed as Messiah, this one who went about in the Holy Spirit and power, this one who was doing good, relieving people's oppression by the devil, this one who lived as a per perfect man. It was shocking that Christ was put to death at the hands of lawless men. But it's even more shocking how he died. They put him, Jesus Christ, the Messiah and King, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Here is the same description that Peter uses when he stood before the trial of the Sanhedrin back in the same book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 30. It's there that Peter confronts the Jewish leaders who stood, who he stood before, and he said, you kill Jesus by hanging him on a tree. That idea of being hung on a tree should bring our minds back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 23 
says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There it is. What this horrible death portrayed, someone who is cursed by God. This is extremely important because in the Jewish mind, the one who hung on the cross is cursed and completely cut off from God. There is a finality to it. Not only are they cut off for a time, no, they are cursed and should be cut off forever from God. But who is it that Peter is preaching this message to? He's not preaching it to Jews. He's preaching it to Gentiles, more specifically Roman Gentiles. And they likewise had an attitude that crucifixion, hanging someone on a tree, is the worst kind of death, the most humiliating, the most shameful, the most dishonorable death one could ever die. It was saved for the worst people. It was not for kings. It was not for those whom God was with. It was not for those who went about doing good and healing. It was not even for Roman citizens. But here is Jesus Christ hung upon a tree as a curse. And what is it that he's doing upon the tree? He's bearing the curse. He's taking our curse upon himself. He's there dying in the place of people who deserve to be cursed. Jesus did not deserve to be cursed. Yet he bore our curse in his body on the tree that he might bring us to God. He bore the curse of those who had disobeyed God, those who had transgressed God's laws, those who had failed to live the way that God had intended. And did Jesus hang upon that tree only to bear the curse for the Jewish people? After all, they were the ones who had God's law in the Old Testament. They are the ones who had failed to live by faith. Was the fact that he hung upon a tree only meaningful to them because the curse of the law was upon them? Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might Come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Not only were the Jews cursed for transgressing the law, all of mankind was cursed for sinning against God. The result is, is that through Christ and Him hanging upon the tree, the blessing of Abraham now might come to even the Gentiles. This is good news for the Gentiles that Peter is proclaiming the gospel message to who are sitting there in front of him. Christ was redeeming them. Christ is redeeming us. This is Christ rescuing us. This is Christ saving us. This is why Peter preached Christ crucified, Christ crucified and this is why we must preach Christ crucified. 
1 Corinthians 1, 23-25 says this, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus' crucifixion, however, was not the end of the story. For even though Christ became a curse for us, in the end, He was not finally cursed by God. One cursed by God, remember, was completely cut off from God. God had no regard for that one. God does not look on that one. But what is amazing is that God regarded His Son, Jesus Christ, the one whom upon the cross... God the Father has turned his back upon the one whom God had forsaken while Jesus hung there upon that tree was once again regarded and thought of by his Father because on the third day, up from the grave, he arose. God raised him from the dead. O glorious thought that the death could not keep our Savior in the grave. Death had no power over him. He came out of the tomb. He arose victorious over death. He is alive forevermore, and he is visible to other people. That's what happened next. He arose from the grave, and other people saw him. Not everyone, but particularly here, we're talking about these apostles, his disciples. They saw him. They sat down with him. They ate and drank. They had a meal with him, which tells us Jesus Christ is not a ghost, He's not some disembodied spirit. He has a real physical body, albeit glorified body, different than ours, but no less real, no less physical than ours. This is why we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, after he has risen from the dead, what does he do? He sends out his disciples. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. proclaimed this message, and it was an urgent message. It was a serious message, something that people needed to know. Here's this message that they were to proclaim. Jesus is alive, and he is appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Judgment is coming. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where Christ will judge. This is why this message is so urgent and so important, because nobody can escape that. The living can't escape it. The dead can't escape it. There is no way out of it. We offer the same gospel message with urgency. If you believe that Jesus Christ is to judge the living and the dead, then you feel the weight of eternity that hangs in the balance. There will be those who enter into eternal glory, but there will be those who enter into eternal damnation. And this is not a temporary position, my friends. This is a forever position. Once that separation happens, there is no going back. 
there is no other way around. There is no do-over. There is no, give me a second chance. There is no, I will change, I will change. This is why the offer to respond to this message is absolutely vital. This is the message that, this is the response that he tells the people to have in verse 43. It's not a new message. In fact, Peter says this is the message that the prophets had proclaimed from long ago. This is the message that you could even go back to the Old Testament and and see. And it's this, everyone who believes in Him, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, everyone who is depending solely upon what Christ has accomplished through His death and resurrection to save sinners will receive forgiveness of sins through His name. That's the remedy for man's problem, forgiveness. Not us forgiving ourselves, not anyone else forgiving us. No, God forgiving us. Forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ who took the punishment for our sins so that we might be forgiven. This is complete forgiveness. Do you know this kind of forgiveness? Have you been forgiven by God? Forgiven. Forgiven. Through the precious blood of Christ we are forgiven. Do not leave here today if you do not know the assurance of forgiveness. It is what people need, my friends. And it weighs on our hearts and minds and, and souls, and rightly so, because only sinners need forgiveness. Only those who understand that they have sinned against God, that they have transgressed His law and the life that He designed for man to live. Everyone needs forgiveness because everyone is a sinner. And it's this forgiveness that is the only way that we will be able to stand before Him who judges the living and the dead and receive eternal glory. What glorious peace and rest only for the one who has believed in Him and found forgiveness. This is, this is the Jesus that we offer to people. We do not offer a different kind of Jesus based upon what we think people need. Peter didn't offer one Jesus to the Jews and a different Jesus to the Gentiles. What all people, what everyone needs, first and foremost, is the Jesus who is Savior and Lord. If Jesus isn't Savior and Lord, then whatever other kind of Jesus we try to offer is worthless. There is no other gospel. This is the only gospel. It is the same gospel for every single person. It's the same gospel your next door neighbor needs. It's the same gospel people in our country need. It's, it's the same gospel that people all over our world needs. There is only one gospel. Let's not be confused about this. No one needs the prosperity gospel the name it and claim it gospel. If someone tells you that they have that gospel, they need to hear something. That is not the gospel. 
someone tells you that they have the social gospel, the merely doing good works and helping the down and out gospel, if someone tells you that they have that gospel, they need to hear something. That is not the gospel. If someone tells you that they need the inevitable progress gospel, the we are all moving forward and inevitably becoming better humans gospel, if someone tells you that they have that gospel, they need to hear something. That is not the gospel. If someone tells you they have the positive thinking gospel, the I just need to think more positively about my life and myself gospel, if someone tells you that they have that gospel, they need to hear something. That is not the gospel. My friends, there is only one gospel. There is only one message, and it's the same message for everyone. We only have one message to offer. We can't change it. We can't make it more accommodating for people. We can't modify it. We offer the same life-giving, transforming, heart-changing, powerful, and glorious gospel to all people. And if we do that, what do we expect to happen? Brings us to number two this morning. We recognize the same, or I'm sorry, we recognize the indwelling of the same Spirit. We recognize the indwelling of the same Spirit. That's what we should expect to see. We should expect to see the Spirit of God at work in people's lives. We should expect to see the Holy Spirit indwelling people. Nothing can sometimes be more frustrating than when we are in a conversation and someone cuts us short. They stop us before we're able to finish what we are saying. Peter is gloriously interrupted. <laughs> this is the kind of intrusion that you want when you're preaching the gospel to people. The Holy Spirit fell on people right then and right there. Which brings us to a question. Why did the Holy Spirit fall upon the people? And we see a connection that is of utmost importance. First, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. That is what Peter is doing. He's preaching the word of the gospel. And people heard the word, and that's the way the Holy Spirit works. He attends the word of God. Or to put it another way, the, whole, the word and the Holy Spirit work in tandem. They work together. They hear the Word, the Spirit uses the Word to work in hearts and minds to change them, to transform them and give them new life. We cannot and must not separate these two. This is why we preach the Word here at Grace Bible Fellowship because we believe the Holy Spirit will attend to the Word and work in people's hearts and lives and change them and make them different. It's not because I'm doing anything in your heart. It's because I believe that this Word the Spirit will use to change you. We're not all here sitting in a circle, holding hands, saying, any minute now, the Holy Spirit will come and we just have to wait for it. No, it was the Word, and the Word and the Spirit working in harmony upon the lives of those who heard the Word. Another reason why the Holy Spirit fell upon these Gentiles is that they believed they responded to what Peter was saying. 
They believe. They put their faith completely in Christ. And we do not see that explicit statement as such in these verses, but this has been Peter's message all along. Repent and believe. And I think that is what happened with the result of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the Gentiles. Now, those words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Also, it says the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. I think those two words are important words because they draw our minds back to the beginning of the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit fell upon people, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon people in Acts chapter 2. And what happens in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit is poured out? The people speak in tongues. What do the Gentiles have happen to them here when they have the Holy Spirit poured out on them? They speak in tongues. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in them. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing Acts chapter 2 again. We're seeing Pentecost again. But what's Interesting is it's not the Jews who are experiencing Pentecost now, it's Gentiles who are experiencing Pentecost now. It's people who you would not expect to be included into the family of God. All of a sudden, there's something amazing happens. That's why the the people that are circumcised that are with Peter, those Jewish believers who are with Peter, they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. There's no two tiers of Christians These people are welcomed into the family of God. They are included. They are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of the living God. One group does not have more spirit or a special spirit or something that would set them apart as more favored or have something that is more desirable. No, Peter says that these people receive the Spirit just as they have received the Spirit, which means we as Gentiles, are fully enrolled as God's children. We are both Jews and Gentiles, full and complete citizens of the household of God. That now, the living God is indwelling both Jew and Gentile and making his abode with us. The Gentiles here, they didn't have to take some other step in order to be included in God's family, in order for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. It was the same. Repent and believe. And they did. Then they were indwelt with the Spirit. And I love how they say this, these believers here, it was a gift. The Holy Spirit was a gift to these people. Do you see that as a gift in your life, that God has given you the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, that he's he's given you the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of you and dwells in you and works in you and strengthens you you and helps you? What great grace God has given us in this gift. Praise Him for this gift of the Spirit. Finally, number three this morning. After they've received the Spirit, number three, we practice the same baptism. We practice the same baptism. 
That's the next step for the people. Under the old covenant, there was a physical, visible demonstration that you are marked out as one of God's children. It was circumcision. It was the covenant sign of the old covenant. But Peter now is seeing a new covenant marker, a new visible way for people to demonstrate that they are a part of God's family. And this new visible marker is baptism. We see over and over and over again in the book of Acts, people believe, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and the next action they take, the next desire that they have is to be baptized. That's the way it happens. Belief and then baptism. That's the way that it happens here. They have believed, and now Peter says, can anyone withhold baptism from these people? They needed nothing more. They believed, they received the Spirit, and so they were baptized. And the reason why they are baptized or immersed in water is because they've already been baptized or immersed by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a visible public demonstration that these people have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would come baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. And ultimately it is this, that one has the indwelling Spirit that makes one belong to the people of God. Baptism is only applied to those who have the Spirit. And so it is this outward visible act of heart change and transformation and salvation that God has brought about in someone's life. That's why we say baptism does not save. It's merely a public proclamation that we are now identified with Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter goes on to say. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter commanded baptism. Why did Jesus command baptism? Or why did Peter command baptism, and I just gave away the answer, because Jesus commanded baptism, right? Baptism is a matter of obedience. He commanded it to be the public declaration that this one has believed, and now they are united with Jesus Christ. It is a covenanting together with the body of Christ, as Christ is the head of the church. I think this is why Peter emphasizes there. Do you see that in verse 48? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Does that seem odd to us? Is that what Jesus said? What did Jesus say? Matthew 28, 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But here, Peter just says, in the name of Jesus Christ. Did Peter get it wrong? Well, I don't think Peter gets it wrong. Because I think for one thing, baptism is showing this identity with Jesus Christ, and so the emphasis is on Jesus Christ. But notice something else. If you can go back in your minds to what I just said in Matthew 28. Baptizing them in the name. Notice it doesn't say baptizing them in the names it says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which would tell us one thing. They have the same name. <laughs> one name, not three names. One name, why? Because name represents character. It represents who you are, everything that you are. And so 
even though Peter here emphasizes the name of Jesus Christ, it's still the same name because Jesus is God. He bears the same attributes, the same characters as the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is the name that these who believe, those who believe in Jesus Christ identify with. It is the name, the name of Jesus, that you are living your life for, that you are now representing as one who has been baptized. Think about the allegiance that these Gentiles are making to Jesus Christ in this proclamation. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. No turning back. I'm following him for the rest of my days with my life. We don't need to give people something different. We don't have a different message. We don't look for some unique, different experience. We're not trying to find some new rite or new ritual that's meaningful to people. We don't accommodate what we say or what we do to make it easier or more palatable for people in our day and age or in our culture. Sometimes we don't need to do anything different, but rather get back to doing the same thing we've been doing all along. Same gospel brings the same spirit with obedience and the same baptism. And we rejoice that different people don't need different things. We don't have to try to tailor this to people who look different or act different or live different because Jesus Christ cuts through all the differences and shows us that at the heart, everyone is in need of the same gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is Lord of all. Let's pray. Help us, O Lord, we pray. As we seek to proclaim the same gospel, may we see the same spirit, the same spirit that indwelt these believers then, would indwell us and would indwell people today. That we'd see the same response in obedience of people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ would now want to be baptized, make that public proclamation, yes, I'm following Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to represent that name, the name, the one name, your name, well in this world. We need your strength. We need your help. We pray that you would give us your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.